podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, uh, glad to be back here with another episode. We're, we've made some New Year's resolutions. We talked about that last time, and, and part of it, after we talked after the episode, was uh, was being more regular in our output. So, uh, <laughs> so far, so good. That sounds like a fiber. <laughs> regular in our output. Yeah, I, I know that sounds <laughs> But uh, real quick, um, another you know goofy joke uh, for the, this week, uh, Glenn. I'm not sure if, if you heard this. I just learned this that uh, it's illegal to drive with your headlights off when it's raining in Sweden. And I immediately asked, well, how am I supposed to know if it's raining in Sweden? <laughs> I like it. It's good. It's good. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Just just a little chuckle. That's that's you know that's what we aim for here. All right, so. Uh, this week, we are very pleased to have uh, joining us a special guest uh, on the show. So I want everyone to welcome uh, Hillary Deleuze. Hillary, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the show, so very excited to be here with you guys. That's great. Well, Hillary, why don't you uh, start off, just introduce yourself to all the listeners out there. Oh, goodness. Absolutely. So I have been working in forensics for about 18 years now, and What's been really interesting about my career is that I'm an active duty military spouse. So I haven't had the opportunity to work in one place or a few places and have a desk with uh, framed photos of my family and, you know, the same commute every day. So I've had a pretty diverse career. So I've worked everywhere from a municipal police agency to federal to consulting, to writing, to teaching, to contracting. And I've worked everywhere from Baghdad to Virginia. Um, So I think that's really shaped me as a forensic scientist. So a lot of those experiences have molded how I view forensics today. Wow. Yeah. Like a a really high level, broad based view of, of forensics, the field. And I bet you've gotten uh, very good at uh, adapting to fit the the situation, the protocols, the policies of wherever you end up. Absolutely. More of a jack of all trades and a master of none kind of situation, I think. <laughs> Hillary, in those roles, were you always doing fingerprint comparisons? I mean, other than the writing or teaching, but when you worked for government agencies in the lab, was it strictly comparisons or processing as well or both or... Well, a little bit of both. Um, and I love both of them. My my true love is getting dirty. Uh, that's what I love about this job. I have a degree in genetics, but I ended up going into fingerprints and I love it because you get dirty. Um, you know, you can do comparisons, you can get out there and talk to people and teach. So yeah, I've been doing mostly fingerprints. I started out doing crime scenes as well. Well, so we have to ask this question as it's this requirement for the show. Uh, it's in the bylaws or something. Why fingerprints? How did you end up in doing fingerprints versus you know anything else in forensics? Uh, I, you know, most of the people that we we ask this question to, the answer usually involves some sort of accident or that was the only open position and it turned out I loved it. But I, I think you might have a, a slightly different story than most on on how you ended up in fingerprints. Yes, yes, I do. It's actually the family business. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, right. yeah, so my my dad is Ken Moses. He started out as a police officer in San Francisco and a crime scene investigator. And most people know him as a pioneer and champion of APHIS from 
the early 1980s on. So I grew up with that. I grew up around fingerprints. I actually used to do drawings and my homework in the the big room that was the APHIS computer in San Francisco. It wasn't, you know, a laptop. It wasn't on your mobile phone. Uh, it was this huge room with really loud fans. And I would just go in there and use the tracing paper because at that time they were tracing, oh, right? right? If you guys remember yeah. that. Oh, yeah. So I would use that tracing paper to draw draw ponies. So, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's the family business. But truly when you grow up around someone who's passionate about what they do, really how can you avoid going into the same line of work? I don't know. It seems like both my kids are avoiding it very nicely. <laughs> There's still time, Glenn. All right. There's a couple of mine of, of yeah, definitely not interested, but there might be one that uh, that is, or, or at least she staked her claim to the business. Uh, like, well, you know that you do have to <laughs> learn a whole bunch of stuff for that to work out. But <laughs> right. obviously, you know, Pat and Casey Wertheim is the, you know, I think the other big, parent-child duo and fingerprints that comes to mind. But, um, you know, there's a few spouse teams out there, but, uh, you know, definitely a unique story for, for, uh, for that. Uh, you know, but also unique in that you've, you've been aware that this is even a possible job from a younger age where, you know, most people, part of not ever thinking that someone would be a fingerprint examiner is not really even being aware of that specific job uh, at any time in someone's youth. so Right. I have so many unique memories of that as a child. I remember actually my dad handing me a brush and some powder and dusting a bullet riddled car in the, what was the basement of the San Francisco police department as a kid. So I can still smell the lab, which was basically just a hole in the wall with a whole bunch of bottles up on the wall so yeah yeah unique way to grow up for sure unique dinner time conversation as well (laughs) oh i bet did did you live in san francisco proper the city i did yeah born and raised right in the middle of the city so your your dad probably had to live in the city because he was a city employee you know i'm not sure if it was a requirement but my mom was also born and raised there and she would never uh, let him leave uh, regardless of the situation. Oh, that's, that's great though. Yeah. Yeah. They're still there. And actually my dad has a consulting business and a, a little lab in the basement of their house, right in the middle of the city. Cool. Yeah. Which is also the guest room. So that's fun <laughs> smelling ninhydrin when we go to visit for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so you were talking about, you know, doing some publishing, teaching classes. So what, what kind of topics have you taught on published on over the years? Well, my first opportunity to teach professionally, I suppose, was uh, when we moved from Baghdad to Hawaii. Um, interestingly enough, there Hawaii is very small. There weren't many forensics jobs available, uh, very, very few jobs available. So I ended up getting a job as an adjunct professor at Chaminade University. So that was really my first teaching gig, uh, beyond a few lectures at some IAI conferences prior to that. But I taught a whole bunch of different forensics courses there, from introductory forensics courses to fingerprints. I had undergrad students and graduate students. But it wasn't until about six, seven years ago that I started teaching professionally. And I taught for TriTech Forensics for five years. And my big course was actually courtroom testimony. That That was the most popular course. But I've also taught battlefield forensics. Um, and several other topics, mostly things I'm passionate about. 
we're going to talk later here in a little bit about uh, one of your most recent books uh, about courtroom testimony. So you're you're there in Hawaii, and you're um, is that is that where you also first did the publication, the first writing to be published? And it's interesting you ask that because that was actually where I was inspired to write. When I became a professor and it was my first time teaching, I was you know combing the shelves for a text that would be appropriate for students. And really, I couldn't find one. There are so many great forensic texts out there, but they just aren't accessible to the student, to the grad student, to even to the entry-level forensic scientist. So that inspired me. You know, they say, if you can't find the book you want on the shelf, write it yourself. Sure. So that, that was really my experience. So I decided, you know what, we need, we need this kind of book. And that's where um, fundamentals of fingerprint analysis and then the accompanying workbook were born. So as soon as I moved from Hawaii to Washington, D.C., again, you know, very abruptly without the opportunity to, uh, you know, to have a job, that desk, that uh, those framed photos, uh, I started writing. And, you know, it, it was truly a labor of love. And now that book, actually both those books are out in their second edition, which is a vast improvement from the first edition for anyone who's interested. So so those books are more of, if, if I have it right, college level introductory information, the fingerprints, as opposed to like Ashbaugh's book, which would be, you'd expect a trainee, a professional fingerprint examiner to read. This is... Uh, this is the college level version of here's here's what you need to know about fingerprints and the fundamentals of fingerprint science. Well, they're actually meant to be accessible by both the entry level forensic scientist slash the student and also the veteran. Um, they're very current texts. And I take every I, basically I start everything at a very fundamental level, but I concentrate on the why behind everything. So not just, hey, this is how it is, but why is it that way? How did we get here? What is the science that built into this issue, this topic, this concept? So really they're for everyone. And I've, I have heard of um, that agencies are using them in their training programs, but also I've had you know, dozens of people tell me that they, they refresh their memories prior to testifying in court with the books as well. Sure. So they're really for everyone. Oh, okay. All right. How did you go from the, I should, or I need to write this because it doesn't exist to actually then getting it published? It was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, yeah. I've always loved to write. So, so the writing wasn't something I was concerned about. It's just the time it takes to do the research that was a bit intimidating. Research, I'm sure you both can, <laughs> can empathize that research can be a bit of a black hole. So my first step was just to walk up to the CRC press table in the vendor area at an IAI conference. And I walked up to, to my editor, Mark Lassune, who was standing there at the table. He's at all the conferences. Uh, at least he was prior to COVID. And I said, hey, you know, you guys don't have a book like this. Here's what I'm thinking. Would you be interested? And we talked for a while. And he said, yeah, shoot me a proposal. So for anyone out there who's thinking, hey, I'd love to write, do it. It was a fantastic experience. I, I absolutely loved it. And CRC Press is, is incredible. They support you every step of the way. Yeah, for listeners that don't know the, the process a little bit, 
Uh, what you're describing is exactly that. I mean, when you propose a book to them, they don't come to you and ask you to write a book. You go to them and say, here's the an idea that, that I have. Then what they do is they will then take that idea. Once you write like an outline and say, here are the chapters, here's what it's going to look like. Here's a little, you know, a little bit of text just to show you my writing style. They will send that out to experts in the field and then get their opinion on whether or not there's a market for it. Does this book already exist? Does it exist to this level? Do you think people will buy this book? And I, I often get roped into those and I review a lot of proposals for, for these books. And actually, I, I, on the book we're about to talk about in a minute, I was asked to take a look at it and not surprisingly, I thought it would be a great addition to the field. But I've seen some books and have rejected and said, absolutely not. This is, this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh. I, I won't embarrass anyone with, uh, but I mean, they were real garbage. I mean, they were really, really bad, like incorrect bad. Oh, no. Well, I'm honored that I wasn't garbage. So thanks, Glenn. No, Appreciate no. Appreciate it. I appreciate the support. <laughs> what you described is so true, though, is the research part. Do they have a topic that is fresh and new and needed for the field? And then have they done the appropriate research behind? It? Absolutely. I wouldn't have written the books if I didn't feel passionately about sharing that knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, and giving it a new twist, a new perspective. And many of the books that we all have used as reference our whole careers are not going to be updated. Right. You aren't going to see new editions of most of these landmark texts. So it's it's important to get that new blood in there to write. So if anyone out there Great is point. interested in writing, yeah, reach out. I'd be happy to, to talk about the process and my experience. All right. So you get approved for the book and off you go. Let's let's talk about the book. What's the title? When did, uh, when, when did it come out? And tell us uh, tell us about this new book. Well, book number five, this was another labor of love. It's called Courtroom Testimony for Fingerprint Examiners. Initially, CRC Press wanted two books, a book for fingerprint examiners and then a general forensic text. But to me, it was very important as a latent print examiner to really focus on the needs of the fingerprint community. So this book was a labor of love that grew from actually two of my different experiences. One as an instructor for TriTech. So for five years, I taught a course titled Courtroom Testimony for Fingerprint Examiners. So I basically took that course and everything I learned from those who attended it. And I tr truly learned so much from the, the colleagues I met during those five years, their experiences and their fears, their questions, their anxieties, and decided, you know, I need to address all these issues that you just don't see in other courtroom testimony books. And then the flip side of that was my consulting work. I did a lot of defense work, um, sort of subcontracting through my dad's company, and it gave me a different perspective on forensics and truly opened my eyes to just the different attitudes and opinions that are out there and a passion to really pull it into sort of a current frame of view. That's a really good point. It's something I know we've talked about in the episode before that the ability to work defense cases, since most of, most of us start a career with prosecution type cases, but the ability to work defense cases, I've always said, 
made me a better forensic scientist. You need to be able to see the other side. You need to see that they ask different questions, that they look at the cases from a different perspective. And I really wish more agencies allowed their examiners to work private cases so that their forensic scientists can grow and experience both of those, those aspects. So it's great that you captured that in your book. Yes, everyone should have that experience, you know, at least once. It really does open your eyes, you know, to a different perspective on forensics. And I agree, it's made me a better forensic scientist all around having that experience. So you mentioned that uh, some of their fears would come out in your courses. What's an example of uh, a typical fear that you'd hear about and one that you felt needed to be in the book? Oh, goodness. Basically, the entire second section of the book, <laughs> which is, is uh, aptly called Hot Topics. Uh, many forensic scientists, many fingerprint examiners specifically, are just very intimidated by all of the evidentiary challenges, by the rapid developmental pace of the science. They're worried they can't keep up with all of this new knowledge. They're worried about addressing issues such as bias and subjectivity and new standards that are emerging. And I think especially cases of error. Mm. Uh, people are very afraid to address those cases of error, which to me, it, it's not unfounded. I can understand where they're coming from. I've been, I've been there, been there, done that. I get it. But at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to embrace our past and embrace the fact that you know erroneous ideas are going to happen. We're not perfect. So how are we going to embrace that and turn it around and address that issue in court? So there are many topics that I think concern people in that, that 45 minutes to an hour when they're waiting to get called up to testify. So I'd have to ask this because it's the perfect place to, to, to bring this up. You mentioned your father is Ken Moses. Many listeners probably recognize that name and recognize that he was involved in the the Mayfield case and one of the, the four examiners to make an erroneous ID, there's this misconception that once you make an erroneous ID, your career is over. You might as well find a new field. You'll never be able to walk into a courtroom again. From what you were just talking about, Hillary, this fear is pervasive about erroneous identifications. From your knowledge or from anything you know, did did he have trouble testifying? Was he able to continue doing his work or was he able to kind of go about his business as usual? What, what should listeners know about life after an erroneous ID from what you were, you're just talking about? Well, it's, it was of course a very challenging time for anyone who's passionate about what they do, who loves what they do. Something like that is quite a blow and not a blow to the ego, but truly kind of a blow to the soul. If you know what I mean. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. I feel horrible when I get an erroneous exclusion, which, oh, yeah, which happens absolutely. fairly regularly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it took a long time um, and I can't speak for him. He has spoken for himself uh, many times since then. He's put on, you know, he's had lectures. He's put on panel discussions to address the issue. But if you have integrity and you have a passion for what you do, you get to the point where you understand that people make mistakes. Any of us could have made that mistake. And it's very easy, I think, for fingerprint examiners to look at the, the charts and to talk about the case after the fact and say, I never would have made that identification. I never would have done that. Well, that's easy to say when, when you know the answer, right? When you know the right. answer to the problem. 
but it can really happen to any of us. So my dad is still, you know, after a very you know, long career and so many incredible contributions to the field, he's still working. He's still going strong um, and he still loves what he does. So he keeps talking about retiring. But the big joke is that what are you going to do when you retire? You don't hunt. You don't fish. You do this for fun. So this is, you know, his love, his hobby. And, you know, he's still he's still going strong and loves what he does. And he's still his integrity really inspires me every day. Well, I, 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 that's really helpful for listeners to hear. I mean, 18 years after you know, a fairly well-known case had a not only had a vibrant career before the Mayfield case came along, but a fairly lengthy and vibrant career after the Mayfield case. Uh, just that should just that should resonate with listeners that. Yeah, erroneous identification is not something that you should, you know, want to have, but it's not also something that has to be a career ender, uh, as it has often been portrayed. And something I address in the book as well is that McKee and Mayfield, we talk about those two cases quite extensively. You hear about them, they come up in court, you hear about them in all the training courses. But in reality, there have been many, many more cases of erroneous identifications. Sure. And there are many out there that we don't even know about. Yeah, I usually see two a year at least in my private cases that never get I mean, and I'm under, you know, the contract not to say anything, but yeah, I mean, I'm seeing an average of two a year. Yes, I saw at least one as well in my in my consulting work. So people always talk about defense witnesses. Oh, you you work for the the dark side, but I found that it's a really great fail safe. Or someone needs to to be able to detect these right when they these these errors when they occur. Yeah, and people should know it's it's not about hey we're going to get you in court right? It's about, hey, let's bring this to light so that an innocent person doesn't go to prison because that's the goal, right? <laughs> right. Right. It's the same, it's the same as, as the verifier job, right? If, if, you're, if you get angry at your verifier for catching your mistake, like, that's on you, right? That's, you should be thanking the, the verifier for finding the mistake. Right. It's the appropriate check and balance that needs to be in the adversarial system. Absolutely. So uh, in, you said uh, in the book, you mentioned some of these other cases. Can you talk about uh, maybe one of the other cases um, of errors besides Mayfield and McKee uh, that, uh, that's in the book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the last IAI conference um, this past year, so 2021, uh, I, I can't remember what the lecture was called. I try to make my lectures have catchy titles, but that, that's not my strong suit. So I need some of you more creative folks out there. If you have a great idea, let me know. Um, but I addressed cases of wrongful conviction uh, and this whole concept of erroneous identifications and the possibilities of making errors. And I talk about two cases. Uh, first of all, Lana Kanan and also mm. Stephen Cowens. So mm. those, are, those are two cases that I discussed in the book where wrongful ideas were made. Now, in both of these cases, I believe I need to refresh my memory probably, but in both of these cases, the individuals who made the identifications were not, uh, didn't have a ton of experience or that's, really that's much correct. experience at all, right? right? So, you know, these are specific cases where, you know, perhaps it's not the best example for the fingerprint examiner who's been working for five, 10, 15 years the certified latent print examiner. Uh, but it's important to remember that 
these are people, right? And I want to make sure these people, uh, that we know about them and put a face to the name. Yeah, the I, I still remember being there in the lecture hall when uh, Kathleen uh, Bright Birnbaum uh, gave the presentation about the Lena Canaan case. Uh, just packed room, everyone was just hanging on the edge of their seat to uh, to hear more details about you know, what went wrong and and uh, how she found that uh, that error. Uh, so uh, yeah. it's it's uh, it's not common you get those presentations, uh, but hopefully that's something that can change. And you know when when errors are detected, you know people can actually go speak about them and share that knowledge with the field, and so that everyone can then be improved uh, to reduce the risk of it happening again. Absolutely. And I actually consulted with her um, as I was addressing this case and as I was writing the book. And I love hearing these firsthand accounts of late print examiners who are defense experts who are reexamining the cases. Uh, it's really interesting. And she gave me quite a lot of information. Well, that's great. All right. So one of the other hot topic uh, sections uh, there in your book is talking about uh, evidentiary challenges. You know, back, oh, geez, 20 years ago, you know, this was, and even 15 years ago, this was, uh, like, everyone was always just worried about what the next evidentiary challenge was going to be and following the news on on who was going to, to testify on who, which side and, you know, how do you handle this? But it, it seemed that maybe over the past five or 10 years, as a field, or maybe it's just me, but it, it seems... It, just seems that we're not following it as closely just almost like the field is as worried about every next Daubert hearing like we were back then. Is that something you sense as well? Or am I, am I kind of in my own bubble here? No, yes. I feel like you're right on. I mean, it's similar to the publications, right? When these publications come out, for example, the National Academy of Sciences publication, the PCAST report, you guys have talked about those extensively. Um, AAAS, we tend to have these knee-jerk reactions and there's sort of a spike, right, where everybody right. is focused on this issue. And the same with these Daubert challenges, right after Daubert, the Daubert trilogy, and then Mitchell and these initial challenges were really another spike in our history. And everybody focuses on this and and it sort of dies down over time when we reach this equilibrium where we understand, okay, these are the issues. This is how we're addressing the issue. Now we're going to move on. So I agree with you. We haven't seen a lot of Daubert challenges. I, you know, they're still going on, but we're not following them as closely. And they're generally not successful. I mean, for the most part, the blanket evidentiary exclusion that fingerprint science is unreliable. That strategy just is not generally successful. And you're right, they keep trying it, but that, as we probably talked about in other episodes, it's not, it's not really an effective strategy. The, the more effective strategy is to look at agency-specific or examiner-specific issues like lack of documentation, lack of accreditation, lack of, of written procedures, etc. Yes, yeah. Several of the more recent case studies I look into and actually that are uh, addressed in the book basically talk about the need to emphasize providing supporting data for your identification, right. transparency, kind of getting rid of that trust me, I'm a scientist point of view, 
and moving more into communicating the limitations of the analysis. So I think we're really getting there as a science and we're moving in that direction. And when that doesn't happen, that's when you tend to see more appeals. And has there been some more, some success uh, from challenges along those lines recently? I haven't, you know, depending on how recently, I haven't seen any really recent cases, at least in my research. I think, you know, maybe five or so years ago, you know, we may have seen a few uh, where the, uh, the witness basically describes an abstract methodology without, again, without the documentation, without the transparency. But for the most part, you know, we're rocking and rolling out there. All right, look, I guess the, the, the next topic here in the, the hot topics is on standards. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, when you go out to teach, you, you probably encounter a, a lot of different opinions from students in your class on, on standards and how that's applied in the labs that they work at. Yes. And just kind of going back to the theme of section two of the book, the entire second half of the book is basically topics that make people cringe, right? Topics that make fingerprint examiners cringe. Things that are not as comfortable to talk about. And I realize in the book, I tried to take a very uh, moderate tone, but I realized that people have strong opinions about all of these topics and standards development and nomenclature is definitely one of those topics where people have very, very strong opinions about the new OSAC standards coming out versus kind of what they've always done. Have you been involved in any OSAC or ASB stuff? I know you're involved in the IAI, but uh, any any involvement in standard writing? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was on OSAC uh, for about two years. Um, I had to bow out due to too many, saying yes to too many things, basically. But <laughs> it was an enlightening experience. I really enjoyed working um, with Henry Swafford, working with Simon Cole, I've uh, worked with so many great forensic scientists to help develop and write those standards, the analysis, and then on to development. So yeah, I had to step down, unfortunately, but it was great learning experience. Do you see those as valuable documents that should be embraced by the community, even though they're, I, I mean, for example, you mentioned the analysis document. It's a pretty hefty document. It's got a lot, a lot of moving parts to it. And I, I really like it, but it's 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 pretty high bar. It is, it is, and and I'm Switzerland. Uh, my colleagues on the IEI board of directors will tell you I'm Switzerland. Uh, I really I have differing feelings about it. I embrace the science of it. I embrace the idea of it, the concept of it. But I'm also realistic. I understand that these standards won't fit every situation. There are very small agencies. When I started, I was the only fingerprint examiner for my agency. And in the many towns around me, they each only had one fingerprint examiner. It's very difficult to apply standards when you're the only person working in the office, uh, when you don't have the support, when you don't have the resources to implement these standards. So I am 100% for for moving the science forward. But I'm also realistic and I understand that, you know, everything isn't going to fit everyone's workflow, right? You can't force a square peg into a round hole. Sometimes it's not 
going to work. But I think the concept behind the standards and implementation is very important for those for whom it fits well. You know, but at the same time, I mean, regarding people's feelings about standards development, about nomenclature changes, change is scary for people, right? And that you see a lot of resistance to change, but that change is also really critical for growth and for moving forward as a science. You know, as we move forward, I think it's really important to understand that, hey, it's not going to work for everybody, but embrace the change. You know, it might just work for you. One of the things I've seen in, as working as a private consultant is, and even smaller laboratories, I mean, you talk about, you know, it's not going to work for everyone's workflow. The reality that I, at least I have observed is that smaller laboratories can change faster. You have fewer people, mm-hmm. right, that to turn that ship. Whereas it's the larger laboratories I find that can be some of the most resistant to these changes because you have so many people that seem to have to sign off on something. It's the smaller laboratories that have the opportunity to adopt earlier and faster. Although, as you point out, often don't. Yes. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, it comes down to support for management as well. Well, and, and one of the ways I, I'm starting to see it more and more is the when change doesn't occur and the status quo you know remains the same for decades and decades, because it's never been a problem you know until now. So, so, sun, suddenly, all of a sudden, it's a problem, right? And it's the it's the examiners themselves that are affected, right? The um, the management that never really in, made the examiners you know, write protocols, they keep their jobs. It's the examiners that, that uh, end up, you know, losing theirs as stuff gets shut down. Yeah. And follow up on that. Some of these changes and standards are not because there are problems, but I mean, to capture the phrase you said, Hillary, to improve the science, Uh, you know, these recommendations may require examiners to spend more time documenting, doing other things, but Again, they're filling out the science behind it and trying to create a universal standard that could be applied across the board. That, again, that's what I appreciate about these standards is the idea that I can open up anyone's notes and if they're following the standard and using terminology, it means the same across these agencies. It's the variability in terminology that drives me insane when I open up someone's case and there's a fingerprint examiner of over 20 years I don't know what they're saying. That to me is a problem. <laughs> yes, that's how I've always done it, right? right. Trust right. me. Trust me. I'm a scientist. Yeah. So what's a what are what's another um, of the hottest topics? The 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 thing that really generates the most discussion, you know, maybe even heated discussion uh, in an, in the classroom setting. Oh, I would say. Uh, I have a chapter on subjectivity and bias, and I would say Mm. that is definitely a hot topic, a contentious topic, because people have very, very strong feelings about and perhaps incorrect assumptions about the meaning of the word subjectivity, the meaning of the word bias. I think bias is confused with prejudice, and people don't truly understand, even though there's a lot of literature out there, many, not just forensic scientists, but individuals don't understand that bias is innate. It comes from our experiences, our beliefs, you know, so many things surrounding us in the environment that we just have to be knowledgeable about that bias and understand that it's not 
a bad thing. It could lead to negative outcomes, but it's not in itself a bad thing. It's about understanding our limitations so that we're better scientists. Yeah. I mean, you say you have to be knowledgeable about it, but I mean, would you agree that not just knowledgeable, but you have to actively engage in protocols or steps to reduce or limit the effect of bias as well. Things like sequential unmasking, having blind verification as a tool. I mean, being, being knowledgeable is important, but you also have to take some action, right? Yes, absolutely. And I, I discuss those potential actions in the book. The first step is really accepting the fact that we do have limitations and that bias could affect our work. And I think that's where sure. many of my, many of our colleagues kind of get tripped up right? They think, oh, I'm not a biased person, but you really have to understand it and accept it as the first step. And then, as you said, Glenn, implement various protocols, various procedures to try to limit that bias in your examinations. And then also to be honest about it when you testify in court and to be transparent about our limitations as well. Yeah. Admitting you're human and have potential biases doesn't have to doesn't have to sink your testimony. In fact, I imagine it elevates your credibility to jurors to show, yes, I, I'm human. I recognize these things. But here are the protocols and steps I have in place to help limit or reduce the potential effects. Yes. When we'd have these discussions, actually, in my tri-tech courses, people would get really hot under the collar. I'd say exactly what you just said. Hey, we're human, right? It's okay to be human. Even when you're on the stand testifying in court, it's okay to be human. Maybe one of the misconceptions is that you're doing something wrong. And I think a lot of the times it's just that uh, recognizing what you're blind to, right? What, um, when, when is that delta just going to disappear? Or you know, when is the distortion going to make you see something that's not there? And it's just, I think we've all been in that situation where all of a sudden someone points out something and you go, oh, right, there it is. It, it just takes looking at it upside down to see it. You know, all these kind of little tricks that examiners, you know, start to develop over time. And, uh, but also it's, it's not just, I mean, it's recognizing it's super important, but then also, okay, what can I do to then reduce the risk of me being blind to this or overlooking that you know, down the road? You know, what, what can my coworkers do to, to assist me in this? What can technology do to me, assist me in this so that, you know, everything is more accurate you know, in the end, which is what we're everyone's aiming for anyway. Right. So one of the chapters that I fancied and caught my eye is that you talk about quantitative considerations and I'll, I'll go to the next step. I assume we're talking about statistical models generally here. Uh, thoughts about that, Hillary, and what the, what do you discuss in the book? Oh, I knew you were going to go there, Glenn. I was just waiting for this. <laughs> it's your baby. Well, and we had a chance to to talk about it before you published, and and uh, so I have a chance to have seen this chapter. Right. Yeah, we did, and and most of the reason is that I really needed you to hold my hand through that chapter. So I truly appreciate it. I, I don't think that was you. You had a very well written chapter, and you <laughs> discussed a lot of great different aspects of it. That you you were very thorough. Well, I, I'm sure many of your listeners will empathize with the fact that I am a bit afraid of numbers. I know there are a lot of people out there who are 
uh, again, this was another contentious topic in my tri-tech courses and, uh, you know, just talking to colleagues at conferences. People are scared of numbers. They're scared of implementing statistics and probability models into their analyses. And many people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to retire when that happens, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really, this chapter kept me up at night because I just don't feel comfortable with the material. No matter how many statistics classes I've taken, no matter how many lectures and workshops I've attended. So really for me, the challenge was battling that and doing really what I, what I was doing for the entire book, which is taking these difficult concepts and spinning them in an optimistic way, thinking, hey, this is a challenge. Let's go there, right? Let's do the best we can to make ourselves better, to push the field of forensics forward. So really, this, this was a, the greatest challenge of the book. And it's something that does keep people up at night, the, the thought of error rates, of being asked the question, how much is enough? All that quantitative stuff that's, you know, we're still working on, right? We're still working on those models. And we're still pushing forward with that. So I think that's another hot topic that people are not comfortable with and people have very strong opinion about. And I know, Glenn, that you have really helped many of us <laughs> come to terms with that and see it as a positive force moving into the future. Well, thank you. I mean, you, you put your, your finger right on the biggest issue is the fear of the examiner. And it's something that I wish examiners recognized more. And part of it has to do with becoming more vulnerable. I hear, like you say, people have strong opinions. And the, the the kinds of opinions I hear are, you know, these models will just confuse jurors, or, you know, this is just misleading, or, you know, just all the issues about jurors won't get it, or this just complicates things, etc. Where I, what I wish the examiner would say is, is what I think is closer to the truth. I don't feel comfortable talking about statistics. I don't know enough about statistics, and I'm worried that if we start using statistics, I no longer will either have a job or be relevant or be able to discuss competently my science. It comes down to a lot of personal fear, although as I try to often tell students, you're not asked about the engineering or the software or the code in APHIS, but you use yeah. that tool all the time. It's not going to be that different using statistical models. They're tools and that they can be used to help enhance, support, potentially make your, your life easier as opposed to having to worry about testifying to statistics. It's just this, this big fear of, like you say and discuss in, in that chapter, examiners are worried about their own limitations in discussing statistics when that may not be the, the biggest issue with these models. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many tri-tech course attendees expressed that they would retire when statistics became the norm, when I will be the first to tell you that I'm in that boat, right? I mean, I'm not going to retire, but I'm in that boat that, hey, this is something that I fear because I don't think I know enough. But I love that APHIS example you give, right? We're not going to be asked about the algorithms. We're asked about how we use the tool. So the most important thing is to use that quantitative data to support your conclusion, but also to supplement it with right. your narrative, 
with visual aids, with examples, with anecdotes, all that teaching stuff that goes into testimony. Great point. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and and uh, I was actually going to basically say the same thing, Glenn. That I mean, imagine just kind of continuing the analogy. Imagine you know examiners out there back in say the the early '80s hearing about this APHIS technology coming, and then, but it it's just it just never really it just never arrives, right? It's it's being discussed and discussed and discussed and you know, 10 plus years later, there's still not a widely available uh, APHIS system for an agency to use. And, you know, examiners maybe worrying about how am I going to testify about this without actually having one to use and practice on. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons it's being held up is because it doesn't look at level three detail or palms or all the information that I look at in my examination. So therefore, it's not a good tool. Right. So I, I think part of this starts to go away once it gets out there, right? Once once a, an examiner or an agency can actually have one in their hands uh, and uh, and start to use and then get training specifically on this one, right? Not just the concept in general, right. but this model. Then, well, oh, okay. Then it's just like implementing an APHIS system and getting training on this APHIS system. That 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 APHIS system that you get training on that specific one is a whole lot easier to use, right? If you just got training on the concept of APHIS, good luck using any APHIS, <laughs> you know, practically. Good point. Good point. So I think the same thing is going to happen here. Once once it, it, it comes out, it was widely available for whichever agency you know, wants to implement that. And then training for that specific one uh, you know, goes forward for, uh, the, for the examiners at the agency. Then it's like, oh, okay, I can testify to this. Sure, I don't understand the exact model or exactly why this model or this equation was chosen over that equation or some of the some of the you know, specifics that the statisticians put together. But I know more than the jury. I know more than the, the, the attorneys do. And, and I can explain it to them. They're... I, I don't need to explain it to a statistician level right. to a jury. I need to get it across to them on their level, and I can do that. Right. Yep. Well said. Actually, Hillary, just a follow-up question. From your experience teaching, do you see change coming here? Do you see more acceptance of it? Do you get more and more students going, look, I actually look forward to this day. Is this one of those contentious discussions in your courses? It's always been contentious. Now, I haven't taught for several years, uh, but in attending conferences and having discussions with colleagues, it's still contentious. But I think that's an excellent point you both made about using it as a tool. Right now, it's an abstract concept, right? That's, that's scary to people, uh, myself included. But once we have that tool, you know, it's like the spikes I was talking about. Publication comes out criticizing forensics, knee-jerk reaction, we react to it, everybody gets themselves into a tizzy, and then it settles down. So I feel like this will be one of those things. Once we actually have something in our hands that we can train on, that we can use, that we'll feel comfortable with, um, I think a lot of those anxieties will die down pretty quickly. I, I don't know, Hillary, if you know, I've been using one in casework. Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've been... Um, I listen to those podcasts, actually. I have found it to be helpful. I, I think the where, where I run into the most trouble 
is what happens when my opinion is different than the model. That's where that's where I find the probably the most difficult part of using a model is uh, dealing with basically conflict resolution, which I, I struggle with sometimes with human beings. And not surprisingly, you can run into that with with the model as well. Right. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. It, and it's interesting now for me, my career has changed so much that now working for the army, you know, I'm basically, you know, in a, a large federal setting. And I've never had that before. So as you said before, you know, turning the Titanic takes a lot more time and energy than, you know, turning the speedboat. Um, so that would be interesting to see how we handle that uh, moving into the future as well. So as we're kind of winding down here, uh, Hiller, anything else you'd like to tell us about the book and generally what should people interested in the book expect if uh, they were to purchase the book? Yes. Um, so I try in this book to take a really optimistic approach, right? Many of these courtroom testimony books that are out there, while they're fantastic, they were written by lawyers or co-authored by lawyers, and they're very pedantic. And what I wanted to do is focus on testimony as teaching, right? When we go up on the stand, we are teachers. We're teaching the end user, the juror. And so I really wanted to focus on that, to make all these hot topics, uh, kind of break them down, but also paint them in a positive light. Hey, we're moving into the future of forensics and the future's bright. So I wanted to present up-to-date information, but in a way that inspires confidence in the forensic scientist and inspire a culture of unbiased sciences, eliminating the us versus them mentality in the courtroom, because that really doesn't serve anyone, especially the fingerprint examiner on the stand. Yeah, I think that that us versus them mentality is, is it's so pervasive, it's so easy to fall into. And, and taking that step back of, you know, that's, that's not my role here, and resisting the, you know, being drawn into that. Uh, is really an important perspective for um, forensic scientists to have. Yeah, indeed. And and <laughs> I'll just throw this out there. Yeah, I think when we think of us versus them, we often think of us, the forensic scientists, versus them. When you say them, Hillary, you're referring to generally defense attorneys, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, my experience now as a defense witness, when I go to the stand, my them is suddenly that prosecutor who was very nice to me when I was working for the government <laughs> is suddenly now using all the same tactics that defense uses. I mean, it's so easy to think of them as defense, but the reality is them to me are, are lawyers. Yes. And, and it doesn't seem to really matter which side you're going to get hostility from the opposing side because it's the adversarial system. So I, I get to run into those dirty prosecution tricks <laughs> that you don't hear about as much because you just don't run into them usually as a government witness. Again, the advantage of working defense cases. And I married a lawyer, so, you know, they're not all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's plenty of examiners out there that have run into this where, you know, they're being called in by the prosecution and the, the them is also the prosecutor yeah. <laughs> in, 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 uh, you know, being the, the most difficult person to work with uh, in the room. Who doesn't take any of your advice, any of your suggestions, uh, doesn't follow your predicate questions that you so yep. very nicely laid out for them. 
Is that, yeah, they, they know they know best, and and uh, and then all of a sudden, all right, here we're going for a ride today. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Hillary, thank you so much for coming on to the show here this week and, and talking about you know all these hot topics and and uh, your experiences and, and books and trainings and all that. We, we really did uh, appreciate uh, you joining us, and um, and you know as new material comes out or new additions if there's new topics that uh new hot topics that get added to the list you know please feel free to let us know and come back absolutely it goes both ways let me know anything you uh you want me to write about in the future yeah i was just chatting with my editor about starting the third edition of (laughs) fundamentals of uh, fingerprint examination so any hot topics you all want to see in there just let me know where can listeners get a copy of the book well you can google it You can go to crcpress.com or amazon.com as well. Great. All right. Uh, Glenn, any training or upcoming classes that you want to mention? Yeah. Well, since we've been talking about courtroom testimony stuff, yeah, we have two on the books, but one that's open right now. This course is Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom. It's the course I teach with Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, who is a defense attorney. And, you know, some of the topics we talked about today, you know, we discussed where you have the opportunity from a defense attorney to sort of poke at them and see how they might approach these various topics. And then it's Carrie and I that actually get on the stand and have him cross-examine us so the students don't have to go through that experience, but they get to see what a challenging cross-examination could look like. And then we discuss, we'll stop and discuss different ways that could be answered, sort of good, bad, worse, different ways to approach those answers depending on the witness. It's, it's a fun course. I really enjoy teaching with both Carrie and Brendan. That course is open and available now uh, through Ron Smith and Associates. It will be in Boise, Idaho. It's already starting to fill up, and it is May 2nd through the 4th, Boise, Idaho. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com. All right. And uh, I have uh, my new exclusion class. I've got a tentative date in the fall coming up, uh, but you know, I'll let you guys know more details as that gets scheduled. Uh, but I'm also looking uh, here late spring, early summer to do a, uh, an online version of the class uh, so that we don't have to get as many people you know, together in one location, uh, you know, finding that interest all in one spot or having a whole agency fill that up. So if, uh, if you're interested in a class on exclusion and, you know, especially agencies with just a couple uh, people uh, per, uh, per unit, uh, you'll reach out to me, let me know, and uh, we can get about a specific date getting scheduled. So if you have any questions about any of these classes, uh, you want to reach out to to me or Glenn or about the any topics for the show, uh, you can email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, and Hillary, uh, if anyone wants to contact you with any follow-up questions from this, uh, how would they get a hold of you? Yes, please feel free to reach out with any questions or any follow-up. Uh, my email is hilmo1 at mac.com. That's H-I-L-M-O, the number one, at mac.com. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys much. You can always go to our website, doubleloopodcast.com. Uh, uh, we've got some you know, merchandise and all the episodes there. And uh, also don't forget about our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash double loop podcast. If you want to help out 
uh, with our you know, hosting and uh, file hosting and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, you can send us a, a buck or two uh, every month uh, from there. Uh, the opinions on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, I think we're all done. So uh, talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.